Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing a series we began last week called Doing Good. And it's a pretty simple idea that we who follow Jesus Christ are called to be people committed to doing what is good and what is right. Now, that doesn't strike me as a particularly new message to be hearing in the church, but it's something that I think we need to keep reinforcing because the truth is very little in the culture and the world around us encourages us to be committed to doing what is right. And quite often in the church also, the instruction given is about knowing what's right, but not necessarily doing what's right. And as a result of that kind of teaching, sometimes the result is people in the church become the most judgmental people in the world because we're so filled with the knowledge of who is transgressing the law and who is not, even though many times we're the ones failing to do what is good. Now, one of the, uh, the real tragedies in our culture is this phenomenon called the hit-and-run accident. That might hit pretty close to home for some of us. You know, this, this idea of somebody who in a car will strike another car or even worse, a pedestrian, and for whatever reason, they don't stop to render assistance, they don't call for help, but they get back in their car and they just drive off. A lot of times it's fear, maybe they've been drinking, they don't want to get penalized. You know, there's a lot of reasons why a person will just choose to continue going hoping for the best. Oh, maybe it was just a raccoon that I hit. Maybe they're okay, you know, and they just keep going. And and it's maddening because the family of the victims not only have to bear the pain of what happened, but they don't even know who caused it. There's no one to bring to justice. There's all these unanswered questions. Now, you know, the thing is, the psychology of the hit-and-run driver is not that difficult to understand. At the end of the day, the hit-and-run driver makes a choice. It's not that they don't know what the right thing to do is, but they make a choice for self-preservation, even if it might cost another human being their life. And before we're too quick to condemn people who do such things, I want to remind us that actually the same psychology grips each one of us on an almost daily basis, doesn't it? I mean, how many times have you known what is right but lacked the courage to do it. And you know, the the truth is, most of the time when we sin, when we do wrong, it isn't because we're genuinely ignorant about the difference between right and wrong in that situation. It's because we don't have the power to do the good or the right which we already know in our minds is required of us. Can we just be honest for a minute here so I'm not just making a speech into the air? I mean, look at me for a second. When is the last time you did something wrong and it was totally honestly because you had no idea that the wrong you were doing was wrong? Think about it. Almost every time we do wrong, we know exactly what we're doing. But we make a choice because somehow we will be better off, we think, if we do the wrong than if we do the right. And the truth is, Even though we know so much, we lack the power to do what is good. 
That's what this is about. If you own a Samsung big screen TV, that's probably a familiar symbol to you. The power to do good. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Where does that come from? Where do we as believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, find the power to do? And I'm saying if you never learn another good thing about what to do, you already know enough to do good. Where will we find the power to do it? You know, I think that conundrum is exactly what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote these words in a letter of testimony to his friends in the church in Rome. He wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have, listen to this, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I don't know about you, but I'm probably one of the weaker people in this room morally, and I resonate very much with that. Man, I know and I have the desire, but darn it, I can't seem to pull it off because I lack the ability to carry it out. Any of you trying to quit smoking or knock off a bad habit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're going to walk through this passage together this morning and give you a few quick points here, and then uh, we'll wrap things up. Listen, this is what the Word of God says. And we're going to begin with the last verse of last week's text, because I think it sets context. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. <clears throat> if you're paying attention, you might be saying, huh? That, and you're, you're in good company. If you just heard me read that passage there and you read it and you still have no idea what that's talking about, it's okay. This is actually one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret. But thankfully... God gave me the interpretation. And it was through a lot of wrestling, and I'm not 100% sure that what I'm going to say is what God wants me to say, but it's faith. You know, this, is, this has stumped people so badly. Some of the greatest minds in Christianity, including Martin Luther, said, I don't know what Peter really is saying here. I think we can piece together from the best scholarship available what really is being said here. And it has very much to do with where we find the power to do what we already know, is good. So hang on with me, and I'll try to simplify and explain this in a way that you could take home with you. So how do we find the power to do good? Well, the first clue is given to us right off the bat. We look at what Jesus has done. We look at what Jesus has done. Look at this verse. For it is, for, we'll start from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, unright, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might Bring us to God. That's really important. You know, last week, we said that sometimes 
You will be called to suffer. You will be punished even if you have done everything right. You have tried your hardest to do what is good. And even still, there are people out there who will punish you for doing it. It doesn't make any sense. And the truth is, that may even be part of God's will for our lives. That we should suffer unjustly for doing what is right. Now, let's be honest for a second here. The more you think about that, the more bitter you're going to become. The more frustrated you will get. Because something about that is seriously messed up. Why should it ever be God's will that I should ever pay a price for doing what is right? And the truth is, the longer you dwell on that from your point of view, the more it's going to drive a wedge between you and God, the more bitter and frustrated you're going to get. I can't think about it without wanting to give up. So that's why Peter says, if you want to be committed to doing what is good, you have to first take your eyes off of yourself and put them where they belong, where all of this starts to make sense. You put your eyes on Christ, specifically at the moment when he hung on a cross for us. When he gave up his life voluntarily, the one righteous person for all the unrighteous people. (laughs) The only way you can accept God's calling to do what is good is to fix your eyes on the one person who did it when it cost everything and didn't regret it and did not grow bitter. Now, you know that Jesus was the only truly righteous person. And I'm not talking about the relative righteousness that we use to measure ourselves against others. Like, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. What? You should not sit in the front. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. I know the stuff he's done. And if we're standing in line deciding whether we go to heaven or hell, I'm glad he's in front of me in line. Because I'm going to look like a rose, you know, smell like a rose compared to him. That is not the kind of righteous Jesus was. It wasn't like he was a little better than us. He's the only person who was ever alive who can stand in front of the world and go, I'm righteous. I never once did anything wrong. And Jesus, who never deserved the punishment he got, took it all upon himself. The righteous for the unrighteous. You know, the truth is, unrighteous suffering makes us want to give up, doesn't it? It tempts us to say things like, that's it, I'm so done with this. What is the point of doing good when all I do is lose out? People walk all over me, I'm a doormat, I get taken advantage of. I keep doing what is right and I end up with no money. They keep doing what's wrong and they end up with a Dodge Viper in the driveway. Something about that is just all messed up and twisted. This isn't the way it's supposed to work, is it? Where's the payoff for being a Christian? And it is really frustrating if you take your eyes off Jesus to ponder that. But when your eyes are back on Jesus, it's awfully difficult when you're staring at the cross to say things like, I don't deserve this. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to stand for it anymore. When you realize that Jesus went to that cross for you, you suddenly get a perspective change and you stop talking about what you deserve. Because the cross is the ultimate reminder of what we actually deserve. Now, be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. And I guarantee you, neither you or I want to receive what we actually deserve. What Jesus did on the cross was he guaranteed that we would not get what we deserve if we put our faith in him. 
And the suffering you're going through right now might not be great. But if Jesus had not done what he did, then suffering would be your entire future, like a bad rerun that never ends. An endless, infinite loop of frustration and grief. That would be our destiny had Jesus not done what he did. That is why our eyes belong on him and not on this tired, broken story of us. That is where everything starts to make sense. You know, the second place in this passage I see where we begin to draw the power to do good, and that is to learn the value of the inner life. This photo, by the way, is one of my favorite photos. I've got a big blow-up of it that I purchased online, and it's hanging in my basement. And uh, that is a, there's a, a photographer who's obsessed with lighthouses. He's a French guy named Jean Guichard. And he, he loves photographing lighthouses in storms especially. So he was in a helicopter photographing this one. And the lighthouse keeper kind of was wondering why this helicopter's floating around. So he walked out, stared into the sky, and he said he, in his memoirs, he, he closed the door just in time before that wave enveloped him. And that's a pretty cool picture. Now, inside, though, in these lighthouses, the guy sitting at a table reading a book, there's music going, a little candle kind of keeping a nice ambient light, and he's just chilling out, and the storms are raging all around, and that's the picture that I think we need to paint here. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, it must have been one of the most terrible sufferings ever endured. In fact, probably the worst in all of history. And yet it says here, being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. That's one of the great keys to finding the power to do what is good. You know, when you were there as a witness, I bet you would have seen Jesus in complete defeat. Everybody who was there that day, including the people who knew him best, walked away hanging their heads in defeat, saying, it's over now. Because they'd watch his body become horribly damaged. In fact, they'd beaten him so badly and then ultimately crucified him. And they watched him take his last breath and in Aramaic actually shout out the words, It is finished. That's as finished as it gets. Where would all these grandiose claims that he would be king of the Jews and reign over the world, where would all those things come true? Everything was finished now. Even his closest supporters hung their heads and they scattered to the winds. They abandoned him thinking the gig was up. I'll bet you in hell that day, there was a party going on. Music, chip and dip, everything. I'll bet you in hell, they were high-fiving each other because from their perspective, it looked like they had won. This Jesus was making a lot of noise, but there he was, limp, dead, hanging on a piece of Roman wood. Where is he going to go now? What are you going to do from this point, Jesus? Yet it says, even as his body was perishing, he was being made alive in the spirit. That is not to say in the Holy Spirit, but in an invisible realm. The inner life was living even while the outer body was being destroyed. And the truth is, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we become capable of experiencing the very same thing. I think that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote these words to his friends in the city of Corinth who were going through a great deal in that time. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Do you get that? Does that describe anything like the experience you are having now as a Christian? Or when your outer life gets in trouble 
does everything fall apart? I mean, I know some people who are actually paper thin, and here's what I mean. They're paper thin because there is absolutely no buffer, no protection between what happens to them outside of their lives and what's going on in them. In other words, they're sort of like cold-blooded reptiles. Reptiles are the ones that are cold-blooded. Amphibians are warm-blooded. I should have studied harder in biology. So like a cold-blooded reptile, right? It can't regulate its own body temperature. Its blood temperature is set based on the ambient temperature. We're like that, a lot of us. What happens to us completely determines what happens in us. You know, I know so many people, they get one turn of bad luck and everything just falls apart. Their attitude sucks. They quit on everything. They start getting mad at people who had nothing to do with it. They lose their job and they punch their wife in the face. Like, well, come on. What does your wife have to do with your job? But that's the way some people are. They have no inner capacity to have a life in here when the life out here is falling apart. And Jesus says, I experienced it and I confer it to you. It is possible in Christ to be made alive inside, even though outside everything is dying. Do you know what this is like, this experience? Of having the waters crashing all around outside the lighthouse and being peaceful inside, curled up by a fire with a good book, knowing there's a place that nothing outside can touch. There's a place in me which is very much alive no matter what else is going around me outside. You know, I think it's so important for the followers of Jesus to experience this feeling, the sensation that inwardly we are being renewed, even though outside, life is terrible right now. You know, we're too focused on what happens to us, often at the cost of what's going on inside of us. I mean, honestly, when, when we ask you, how are you doing today, do you usually answer based on what your circumstances are like? Or is there another place inside of you from which that answer can actually come? Most of us, when someone's going through a really bad time, we don't even bother asking how are you because we just assume you're doing bad. Wouldn't it surprise you if someone said, well, you know, I mean, I'm losing my job and I've got this tumor right here and stuff, but I'm okay. I actually am discovering new depths of the love of God. I have a peace, a strange peace, where I'm not afraid of death anymore. I'm not afraid of things. I'm okay. Do you know what that's like to find that place in Christ? I was talking to someone recently who worked for a while in an after-school program, and I won't mention any names, but this person knew a, 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 well, a, a, the child of a rather well-known Chicago celebrity attended this program. And what, what my friend was telling me is uh, this person and her husband had three full-time live-in nannies who were on duty even when they were both at home. Now you might think, wow, did they have like five kids? They had one child. And three full-time nannies. How overwhelmed would you have to feel to think that's required of you? Now, listen, my aim is not to use that illustration to judge somebody I don't even know, okay? But it is to make this suggestion. Sometimes when we feel pressure from outside, our most simplistic response is to keep dealing with outside things. I know, I, I, I feel this annoyance when this baby cries while I got work to do, so I'll hire someone to pick up the baby when they're crying. And then I feel this annoyance that I have to pick up my dry cleaning when I have stuff to do, so I'll hire another nanny who, when they're not watching the baby, will pick up my dry cleaning. And, and so on and so on. So we keep addressing outside things with outside things. 
completely missing the point that sometimes what God's doing with that external pressure is trying to strengthen the inner person. And I'd like to suggest to you that a move like hiring three live-in nannies for one child ultimately will result in the diminishment of the person. You're supposed to be able to raise one kid with your spouse, even if you're both working. There's supposed to be room for that. And we're supposed to grow into those shoes. They don't fit right away. We're swimming in it. Every first-time parent spends the first year freaking out, which is why the first kid is always the weirdest. I'm a firstborn. You know, firstborns always got the worst parenting because they're experimenting and learning along the way, right? That's the way it goes. We're freaked out because no one can do this. But if you just keep using external means to deal with external stress, you will shrink inside. You'll never understand that God sometimes calls us to do good by understanding that the inner person is what's important to God and was what needs to be strengthened and made alive. I'll give you another illustration. Last week I was shopping at Woodfield Mall, which is something I really hate doing because of the parking lot. But it was in the parking lot that I found an incredible story. I was backing out, and I saw this couple. They were kind of blocking the lane I was trying to get out. And at first, I was kind of annoyed, like, move. But then I noticed they were just standing there, and I started staring at them, and I I deduced the situation. They were backing out, and they had dinged another car. So I looked, and the scratch was, you know, like it was where those white streaks appear on the bumper. It wasn't a major damage, but they could have easily driven off and gone, well, that's what you get for parking in Woodfield, and just taken off, Right. That's probably what most busy people would have done. They would have stared and said, oh, that'll just buff right out and just taken off. You know what they did? They were sitting there waiting for the owner of that car to come out of Woodfield. They didn't leave a note. They were waiting. And as I pulled away, I just I remember thinking, man, that's, that's the way we're supposed to be. You know, when you do what is right, a lot of times it's going to cost you something. Lord knows how many hours they waited. What if that person works second shift or something and like, they want to come out till 10? I mean, how long do you wait? They were an older couple. I think they have the patience to wait. Who knows how many hundreds of dollars they'd have to shell out to fix that damage? How much scorn and anger they'd have to endure from that person? But you know what? Though it costs them a lot in the short run, that couple will move on in their lives with a very great inner freedom, a strengthening of the inner man. Because, you know, they won't walk away with this lingering guilt that, man, I should have stuck around. They, they have the joy, the thrill, the peace that comes from treating other people the way you would like to be treated in the same situation. How many of you would like to come out and find your car banged up, no note, no person waiting? Dang it! Just want to kick the car next to you and think, what is wrong with the world? How surprised would you be if a little elderly couple walked up and said, Our bad. We will pay for the damage. We waited for three hours. It's almost starved to death for you to come out. You know, it may cost you in the short run to do what is good. And the outer person may be deteriorating. But inwardly, it is possible to be made alive, even as we're paying the ultimate cost on the outside. If you don't learn that as a follower of Jesus, the experience of being a Christian will always be for you totally incomplete. It won't make sense, and you will lose your taste for it over time. But there's a special reward for those whose faith looks like this. They sleep better at night, and they know who they are. There's a last thing I want to point out here. Where do we get this power to do what is good? And this is where we're going to tackle the most difficult part of this passage, this crazy talk about Noah and 
the Spirit of Christ preaching to dead people in prison and things like that. I'm going to unpack it for you, so hold on with me. It's a dollar bill for my own wallet that I scanned. And Do you notice what it says there on all our money? I toyed with the idea of going in Photoshop and interposing the word this between in and God. In this God we trust. Isn't it ironic that the greatest competitor for our hearts has printed on it, whether it's paper or coins, in God we trust. You know, you can't really do what is good unless you feel safe. It's impossible to do what is good unless you feel like you're part of a system where good ultimately will be validated, vindicated. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you work for a company that consistently rewards the conniving, scheming, backstabbing people, then you will never do good because what is the point? And everyone who works there knows it. They get the drill. You cannot do what is good until you feel like you're in a system that's just. And that's why it's so important for us to learn to place our trust in God. Now, this is one of the hardest passages for New Testament scholars to agree on. And I'm not going to walk through every technicality. By the way, the reason I'm doing that is not because I'm lazy, but because I think I'll lose most of you. If, if this is the way you're wired, you love this theological nitty-gritty, I'd be glad to have you buy me lunch, and I will expound for an hour on the theories of interpretation. I'm simply going to give you what I believe is the soundest way of looking at this passage, and then I'll eat well as you learn the rest of it on your time. It says that Jesus, after he was dead in the body but alive in his spirit, went and proclaimed to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In other words, during the period while Noah was hammering and everything, going to Home Depot a million times, they did not obey. And in which a few, that is eight persons, Noah, his three sons, and all their wives, were brought safely through the water. What's the deal with all this, and what on earth does it have to do with finding the power to do what is good? When Christ died at the crucifixion, I believe that his spirit was made alive, and he went to visit those who were in that place where dead people wait until the return of Christ and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And specifically, he went to visit those who had not obeyed the Lord's invitation to trust in him and to be saved. Some of them were demons. It's clear that that from the language of spirits in prison, because that language right there is most often used in Scripture to describe that place where the fallen angels, the demons, reside. And so it's clear that some among those he visited were the fallen angels who once were favored and in God's presence and out of pride and rebellion, were cast away from him. But it's also clear because of the mention of those in the days of Noah, that it was the spirits, the souls of those who had not received the invitation which Noah repeatedly spoke. Do you realize that while Noah was building the ark, he was called to proclaim a warning? And in fact, the ark itself stood as the ultimate visual aid. Look it! Something bad is going to happen And this ark is big enough for us. I want you to come and be saved. And no one in his region would believe him. And as a result, the floods came. And all the while, people were mocking until the first drop of rain began to fall. You know, I don't know what you feel about the movie Evan Almighty. But when I watched it, something just soared in me. Because it didn't do everything well. But it captured for me, at least in one point, a bit of the shift in mood 
that takes place when the mockers start to suspect that maybe this crazy guy had something. Maybe he was onto something. You know, here's Noah serving as a living warning that it is always safer to trust in God than to trust in yourself. And they didn't do it. They refused the invitation and they were disqualified from that salvation. And it says here that Jesus now in his spirit went and preached or proclaimed. The word proclaimed is translated in other translations as preached because the Greek word standing behind it is keruso, which is most often translated preached, but it really is more technically translated declared, proclaimed, the way someone who's making a bold statement in public for everyone to hear would declare. If he meant to preach the the gospel a second time, to give these dead people a second chance of salvation, they would have used the word euangelizo, which is to preach the good news, but that word was not used. Instead, the word that was used was simply a proclamation of a truth. And so I believe the best reading of this passage is that the, the that Christ, who had been crucified and would soon be resurrected, did a victory lap. He went to sit among those who had not believed him and thought they were wise in their own eyes, and he said, listen, this is living proof for you that it is always wisest and safest to trust God and not yourselves. Even though everything in your eyes tells you that what you can grasp in your hands is real and true and trustworthy, putting your trust in God is always going to be vindicated. You thought you had beaten me. You thought you had chosen the better way. But I'm here to tell you before I go back there and and rise to life that that's wrong. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody lives except that they put their trust in God. That is why the people of Noah are given special mention, because they were given many, many years to heed the warning, and they rejected it. And as a result, they put their trust in themselves and not in the God who invited them to be saved. Now, before we're too quick to condemn them in their faithlessness, listen. Not everybody finds it easy to put their trust in a God they can't see. When I say not everybody, I mean us. Do you realize those people that Noah was proclaiming the warning to? If they actually took him up on it, they'd have to leave everything behind. They'd have to accept that the world that they understood and knew was going to be no more. They'd have to accept that the homes and the businesses and the families they had worked so hard to build, everything they treasured would be swept away in the rains. They had to accept that they would make a life on the other side of that storm with what they could pack in a couple briefcases. And speaking of briefcases, I fly a lot. And you know, when in most flights, the flight attendant gives this warning, right? Have you heard it? In the event of a water landing, which is a nice way of saying, if we crash, okay, Please don't grab any of your luggage. Just proceed orderly fashion out of the plane. There's so many things wrong about that statement, first of all. In the event of a water landing, I'm going to be screaming like a five-year-old girl and running like in circles, okay? But, but they want us to just kind of go, oh, we've had a water landing. Let's walk out orderly. And, you know, I'm always thinking to myself, yeah, that's what they say. But if we crash in the water, I'm still going to try to grab my briefcase with my laptop. And I'm taking my Mac and saving her. I'm always thinking that to myself, like somehow I'll just grab it and I'll be able to balance on the lifeboat because I'm not letting go of this. You know how hard it is to let go of the things you treasure? Do you have any idea how difficult it is just to go, well, oh, there it goes. Some of us have lost a great deal of money in the stock market at one point or another, and that experience is still 
creating a huge hollow place in our gut, isn't it? That's been my experience. I've lost a lot of money in the stock market before. I've made some too. But man, when you lose it, it's one of those experiences that makes you realize it's hard to let go of things, especially when they represent the world which you're so certain of. Don't be too hard on the people in Noah's day. What Noah was inviting them to do was an impossibly crazy thing. Say goodbye to the world you understand. Hop on a boat and be part of a new world order that will start after God flushes the toilet on this one. That's not an easy thing. But for those who did it, they were brought through the water to safety. What's interesting to me is that Noah's ark didn't have any oars or sails. It wasn't a boat which was propelled by human locomotion. It was a boat that was just a safe room for the occupants to be carried someplace not of their own control. And that's a very important feature of the ark. Because it was a passive salvation, not an active one. It was not the kind of salvation where he said, Hey, I think the water is receding that way. Sons, row hard. There's no way eight people, even if they put their wives to work, could have put their backs into it and steered that huge ark. They would float, and they would end up where they ended up. That's why tradition tells us it ended up on top of one of the tallest mountains in the world, right? You know, it would end up where it would end up. And that's the thing about putting our trust in God. We obey Him and do what is right according to what He has commanded, and then we passively trust that God will take care of what happens after that. You've got to really believe that God is able to take care of you, or you will never find the courage to do what is good and what is right. You know, we, when we teach the story of Noah, we, do, we make a lot of mistakes when we teach Noah's Ark and the Great Flood story to children. First of all, for some crazy reason, Noah is most closely associated with animals. All the stuffed animals and precious moments figurines are all about Noah and a boat full of cute animals. Two by two they went. You know, that's not even the important part of the story. How on earth do we manage to miss the fact that the, the vast majority of the earth's population died in drowning. Mothers desperately holding their babies above the water for one last breath. This is the horrific story of judgment and the great cost of not putting our trust in God. When you obey the Lord, you've got to believe that somehow if you do it, He will carry you safely to the other side. We make a lot of big deals out of Genesis 6-9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That is, in fact, why I named my firstborn son Noah. I wanted that to be true of him. Son, be a righteous man, blameless in your own generation. Definitely the jury's still out on whether we named him correctly. But you know what? The thing is, that was my hope, because we make such a big deal out of Noah was the last good man on earth. Who cares? It was not his goodness that saved him. The most righteous thing which Noah ever did in his whole life was given to us in Genesis 6.22 and it says, And Noah did exactly everything which God had commanded him. The most righteous thing Noah did was build a boat that was insane to build because God told him rains were coming and Noah believed God. The most righteous thing Noah ever did was that he put his trust in God, and God rewarded that faith by saving him. It's very important you catch that language because it says they were brought. Do you see the passive voice there? They were brought safely through the water. Just like earlier on it says, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous that he might what? 
bring us to God. Those who approach God do so in faith, trusting that God will carry them, not that they will swim their way to shore. You will never do what is right in God's eyes unless you trust him, unless you really believe that he is righteous and he is able. And that's why I think the last verse is meant to give us a tremendous amount of confidence and comfort. It says that Christ has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, having passed through this ordeal and being made alive in the spirit and then again alive in his body, Christ now sits in the most powerful seat in the universe and he reigns over everything. And the comfort that is given to us is this God who calls us to do right, even if it costs us our very lives, is a God who has both the authority to command it of us and the ability to see us through to the other side when we do it. Did you catch that? He has both the authority to command it of us and the ability to validate or vindicate that faith. Some of you might be sitting here this morning in very much a moral dilemma. You're in a situation in your life where you know the right thing to do and you're finding it so difficult to do. My challenge to you is this. Heed the lessons of this passage. Learn to be committed to doing what is good by tapping into the right source of power for doing what is good. By the way, there, I forgot to show that to you while I was talking about the whole Noah story. That's actually a clip from Heaven Almighty. <laughs> Sorry, I should have used a more old piece of art, but I really like this movie a lot. Let me just summarize for you so that as you're thinking about your final thoughts going home, we'll have our, our thoughts all on the same page. We find power to do what is good by looking at what Jesus has done. Because in front of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we see the one righteous who died for all the unrighteous, it's really hard to say things like, I've had enough of this. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I'm not putting up with this any longer. When we look at Jesus, it puts all our suffering into perspective. And it enables us to stay committed to doing what is good. We also learn to value the inner life. We realize that quite often when we do what is good, what is right, we will suffer loss in the external life. But even as that's happening to us, it's possible in Christ to be made alive, fiercely alive in the inner being. And that is one of the greatest lives we can grab hold of. That's to be truly alive, is to be impervious to the travails of life and be able to say, God is good and I am well even though everything around us circumstantially is falling apart. If you have not found that place, then as I said before, your experience of being a follower of Christ is incomplete. And finally, put your trust in God. You have to believe that we live in a world that ultimately there will be justice in. God is fair. He's in control of things. And when he calls us to do things that are so counterintuitive and countercultural, we have to be able to trust that if we do it the way God says, that at the end of the day, God will be pleased and he will work out justice and righteousness in this world and in the life to come. If you don't trust him and you don't believe that, you will be powerless to do what is good when it costs you everything. We already know what is good, don't we? 
I mean, if our lives depended on it, most of us could write a 10 or 20 page paper on all the things we know which people should do. But the real question is not do you know, but will you find the power to do it when it matters? And I hope that the Lord has blessed you this morning by showing you that power is available to all of us to do what is right and to be committed to doing it in the long haul. If you'd like to unpack any more of the details of this passage, as I mentioned before, and I'm only half kidding about you buying me food, it's going to take a lot of energy to explain all this to you. But I'd be very happy to sit with you and walk through this passage in greater depth and technical difficulty, and and I'm happy to do it. But I hope that these simple principles will strengthen you this week to think about how deep is your commitment to really doing what is good and right as you follow Jesus Christ. We bow together, and I'm going to invite the praise team to make their way up. If you keep track of such things, you'll be pleased to know I broke a time record this morning for my message. Praise God. Uh, As they're coming up, I want you to think about a couple things. Do you have a price or a limit? That point where the cost or difficulty of doing what is right will be so high, you will just say, forget it, I quit. What's the point? Do you find yourself in the habit of saying, it's just not worth it? Maybe going even one step further, can I just challenge you about something? Do you find that in your life you're doing things that are morally questionable? Things that if other people knew about it, they would say, you know, you're not, that's, that's unethical or it's even illegal. Business practices. Cheating your customers. Engaging in fraudulent billing practices. Stealing from your employer, cheating on your spouse, stealing your neighbor's vegetables. Do you find yourself doing things that are just morally reprehensible and you're doing them because they, they allow you to get gain in this earthly life? It's easier than doing what is right. It's certainly more lucrative, more profitable. You know, as a follower of Jesus, one thing ought to be said of us by the people who know us. And that is that those people who, who follow the way of Jesus, they consistently do what is right. Even when they're staring down the barrel of a gun, even when they stand to lose everything, they do what is right in front of their God and in front of their fellow man. And the challenge to you this morning is, does that describe you? How committed are you to doing what is good and right in God's eyes, no matter what the cost? Do you have the power that the Lord has given you to do that? If you lack the power, then I pray you would join me as we ask God to give it to us. We've heard from the word today. This is our time now to say, Lord, make these things true of me. Put it in here. Let's pray together and, and reach out to God for the courage and power to do good. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.